November 6th, 1976. Rome, New York. 59-year-old Stanley Griesick and his wife Esther are attacked in their home by two masked intruders who tie up Esther, ransack the place, and murder Stanley. Even though the original autopsy report claims that Stanley was stabbed to death, his son finds a shell casing inside the house, and an exhumation of Stanley's body reveals that he was shot. Over a decade later, a new investigation uncovers evidence that the two perpetrators were hired to break into Stanley's house, and that his death may have been connected to illegal activities involving his deceased brother, but no one is ever brought to justice for the crime. After that, the trail went cold. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of The Trail Went Cold. I'm your host Robin Warder and today we will be profiling a very odd case which was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, the 1976 murder of Stanley Griesick. I actually consider this to be one of the more underrated segments from Unsolved Mysteries as the case has never really gotten a lot of discussion, but it's definitely a strange story. It involves the death of a man named Stanley Griesick who was murdered by two masked men during a home invasion. They spent a great deal of time ransacking the place, but no one knows what they were looking for, or if they found it. This is a pretty convoluted case involving allegations of a police cover-up, an illegal activity at a local bar, and the biggest mystery is the motive for why this crime took place. By all accounts, Stanley was a very honest, law-abiding individual who seemed like the last person you'd expect to be caught up in something like this, but it's possible he was targeted because his recently deceased brother have been involved in something shady. So we're going to explore this entire story and try and figure out the most logical explanation for what might have happened here. However, before we get started, just a quick reminder that The Trail Went Cold is a weekly podcast which is currently available for download on several platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. So if you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it, and please leave us a rating or review on any of those sites to help spread the word and garner us more exposure. The Trail Went Cold is finally on Patreon, so if you would like to learn how to support the show, please visit our page at patreon.com slash thetrailwentcold. For as little as $1 a month, you can garner access to exclusive rewards, which may include stickers and thank you cards, early access to episodes, and bonus content. So with all that out of the way, let us now explore the unsolved murder of Stanley Rizek. Our story begins in the town of Rome, New York in 1976. Our central figure is 59-year-old Stanley Griesick, who lives with his 54-year-old wife, Esther. The couple have been married for 33 years and have three children. Stanley has five siblings, and two of his brothers, Peter and Bernard, help him run a family-owned gas station and liquor store, 
which are located right next to Stanley's house. Sadly, the Grisics would suffer a tragedy this year when Peter passed away on July 2nd after a lengthy illness, but another tragedy soon hit the family in a very unexpected way. On the evening of November 6th, Stanley and Esther were at home with their six-year-old grandson who was staying with them and sleeping upstairs. Sometime after 11 p.m., Esther was going through her nightly ritual of checking all the house's windows and doors to make sure they were locked. While she was in the kitchen, two men wearing ski masks, one of them tall, the other short and stocky, suddenly burst through the back door and the short man grabbed Esther by the throat. It wasn't long before Stanley, who had been running a bath for his wife, came running downstairs and entered the dining room, where he immediately got into a struggle with the taller man. The other intruder remained in the kitchen and started choking Esther until she momentarily went unconscious and fell to the floor. When Esther regained consciousness, she essentially started playing dead and kept holding her breath. She proceeded to lie face down without making a movement while her assailant handcuffed her behind her back and tied her arms to her feet. While this was going on, Esther caught a glimpse of the man placing a pearl-handled gun down on the floor in close proximity to her face. After Esther was tied up, he picked up his gun and left the kitchen. Esther was deaf and required the use of a hearing aid, but it had been knocked out of her ear while the intruder choked her. As a result, Esther could not hear what the two men were doing inside the house, but she knew they were still there because she could feel the vibrations from their movements on the floor. Esther remained motionless for nearly an hour until the handcuffs were removed from her wrists, though her arms and feet remained tied together. When she could no longer feel movement inside the house, and was certain the intruders were gone, Esther finally started to wiggle around until she managed to get her arms untied from her feet. She then got up and left the kitchen, but was soon horrified to find Stanley lying dead on the dining room floor. He had been bound with cords taken from the blinds before he was killed. Esther also discovered that the entire house had been completely ransacked by the intruders, who had torn the place apart. Thankfully, her grandson was unharmed upstairs and had slept through the entire incident. Esther attempted to use the phone, but discovered that the lines had been cut, so she left the house and ran to the home of Stanley's brother Bernard, who subsequently contacted the police. After Stanley's body was taken away, the Rome Police Department barred the Grisic family from entering the house until they could perform a thorough search. They eventually determined that no robbery had taken place, and the only items missing were two bottles of beer from the refrigerator. The ransacking seemed to indicate that the two intruders had been searching for something, but no one could figure out what they were looking for, or if they actually found it. The following day, Stanley's son, Martin Griesick, went looking through the house, and came across a spent shell casing on the floor underneath the dining room table. Needless to say, this took him by complete surprise as police had already performed an extensive search of the house following the murder, and the shell casing was lying right on top of the rug, so it wasn't easy to miss. Regardless, Martin picked it up with a pencil, put it inside a plastic bag, and contacted the police. When a detective arrived at the house, he took the shell casing from Martin and put it in his pocket, but asked him not to mention it to anyone else for the time being. While the discovery of the shell casing would cause a major discrepancy, as all the newspaper articles about the crime stated that Stanley was stabbed to death, and the original autopsy report listed his cause of death as a single stab wound to the heart. Since her hearing aid had been knocked out, 
Esther could not say she heard a gunshot that night, but she was adamant that her attacker had placed a gun on the floor beside her, and the Grzyk family believed that the shell casing on the dining room floor was conclusive evidence that Stanley had been shot. Stanley and Esther did not keep any guns in the house, so there was really no other explanation for the presence of the shell casing unless one of the intruders had fired off a shot. As a result, the Grzyk family had Stanley's body exhumed less than a month after his death. A second autopsy discovered a 25 caliber bullet in Stanley's chest, and there was no sign of a stab wound. This revelation made the Grzyk suspect that a cover-up was taking place, but the investigation hit a complete standstill. Sadly, Esther passed away in June of 1978, and her family believed she was never the same after the trauma of her husband's murder, and essentially died of a broken heart. The case would pretty much be forgotten for over a decade, until it was revived in an unexpected way. In March of 1989, a drug dealer came forward, and told the Rome Police Department that he had information about someone who was likely involved in the murder. According to the informant, a few days before the crime took place, he was working as a bartender when he was approached by another man associated with this bar, whom he owed money to at that time. The informant claimed this man offered to wipe his debt clean if he would participate in a burglary he had organized. The man soon drove the informant to a house which turned out to be Stanley Grzyk's home and told him there was a large amount of money hidden in there for the taking. Well, the informant declined to participate in the burglary, but of course, a break-in would take place at that house just a few days later, which resulted in Stanley's death. By the time the informant shared this story, there was a new team of detectives working the case, so the investigation was reopened. The detectives soon got in touch with Amy Scott, who had been a neighbor of the Grzyks in 1976, and shared her own interesting story. According to Amy, shortly after 11pm on the night of the murder, her dog became restless, so she took him outside the house, and happened to see a man walking down an alley toward the Grzyk home. Approximately 45 minutes later, Amy walked out onto her porch to call her dog back in, when she noticed the same man exiting the alley and climbing into a white Lincoln Continental driven by a second man. The vehicle sped away very quickly and nearly sideswiped Amy's dog in the process, which prompted her to shout at them. A few days later, Amy went to a drive through window at a bank when she noticed the same white Lincoln Continental in her rearview mirror with the same two men inside. When Amy drove away, the Lincoln remained behind her for several blocks, and she got genuinely frightened that she was being followed. She quickly drove to the police station and met up with a policeman on the front steps. After she explained what was happening, Amy and the policeman climbed into his car and drove around the area to search for the men in the Lincoln, but by this point, they were gone. When she was re-interviewed, Amy directed the new investigators towards a woman named Patsy Peck, who had another interesting eyewitness account. Patsy owned a bookstore in Rome, and the day before Stanley was murdered, she claimed that two men matching the descriptions of the individuals Amy had seen entered her establishment. One was tall with dark hair, while the other was short and stocky with sandy hair, and they drove a white Lincoln Continental. According to Patsy, the two men chatted with her husband, as they were apparently acquainted with him, but had not seen him since leaving town a while back. Patsy claimed that she had shared this information with the original investigators shortly after Stanley was murdered, but even though Amy Scott's initial interview was still in the police file, there was no record of Patsy's statement. But this would not be the only eyewitness sighting of these two men in Rome. 
Another witness told police that he remembered seeing them enter a local bar shortly after Stanley's murder, which happened to be the same bar where the informant had been approached about participating in a burglary days beforehand. The witness saw the two men meet up with another man near the back of the bar, who handed them an envelope containing a large sum of money before they left. Well, the witness recognized at least one of the two men and approached the individual who handed them the money. This guy said that the money was payment for a job they had recently done for him and that these two men now had to leave town. So the implication seemed to be that the two men who broke into Stanley's home and murdered him had been paid off to do it, but the big unanswered question was, why would anyone target Stanley? Well, it turned out that the liquor license for the bar where this transaction took place had been held by Stanley's brother, Peter Griesick. As you might recall, Peter passed away from an illness only four months before Stanley was killed. Four months before his own death, Peter was gravely ill, so he summoned Stanley to his home so they could have a private conversation in his bedroom behind closed doors. Well, no one else knows what they talked about, but it seemed to have a serious effect on the two brothers' relationship. Even though they had always been close, Stanley never spoke to Peter again before he died. After Peter's passing, Stanley still never revealed anything about their conversation, but his family noticed that his behavior seemed to change, and he became more distant. During a visit with his daughter Patricia, Stanley surprised her by saying, I don't know when I'll ever see you again. This turned out to be the last time Patricia saw her father alive, as he was murdered shortly thereafter. Anyway, the bar Peter was involved with eventually closed down after its liquor license was revoked in 1982. A number of illegal activities were discovered to be taking place at that bar, including on-site gambling and the sale of controlled substances. By the time the investigation into Stanley's murder was reopened years later, crucial evidence had disappeared without explanation, but they were able to get the case featured on Unsolved Mysteries in October of 1990. At the end of the segment, a photograph was displayed of a man named Charles Brzezinski, who happened to be a former employee at the aforementioned bar. Brzezinski had been a wanted fugitive since 1977, as he jumped bail while awaiting trial on unrelated drug charges, and was now believed to be living in Phoenix. He had been interviewed by police shortly after Stanley's murder, and was considered a material witness in the case. I have no idea if Brzezinski was ever found, but I did find an interesting thread at the Unsolved Mysteries message board at the Sitcoms Online forum, which I'm always referring to. In 2005, a poster using the handle NYGFANNJ claimed he had an uncle named Charles Brzezinski who bore a striking resemblance to the photo from the Unsolved Mysteries segment. According to NYGFANNJ, his uncle had left the family to go off on his own, but none of them had heard from him in over 30 years so it seems like the fate of Charles Brzezinski is an unsolved mystery in its own right. Anyway, the unsolved mystery segment wound up generating 300 tips from viewers, and in January of 1991, authorities announced that they now had a prime suspect whom they believe hired the two men to kill Stanley. The suspect was not mentioned by name, but they mentioned that he was living in the Syracuse, Utica area at this point, and it was theorized that he had Stanley murdered because he knew too much about illegal activities which were going on at the bar. However, while the authorities thought they might have enough evidence to get an indictment against this man, they did not believe they had enough evidence to secure a conviction. Unfortunately, the investigation pretty much hit another standstill after this, and the identities of the suspect 
and the two men he allegedly hired have never been revealed to the public. The case is officially still unsolved, and the full truth about the circumstances behind Stanley Grzyk's murder remain murky. So I guess you could say, the trail went cold. Needless to say, I'm always perturbed by cases in which ordinary law-abiding citizens who seem to have no dark secrets in their life are murdered in what appears to be a professional hit. The evidence clearly suggests that at least three people were involved in Stanley Grzyk's murder and that he was killed after someone paid off two individuals to break into his house. It seems like the authorities have a pretty good idea who the perpetrators were, but the big mystery here is what the motive could have been. I get the sense that a lot of people in Rome probably knew who was responsible, but the investigation remained in limbo for over a decade until the right witnesses were willing to talk. I have a feeling that the original investigators were content to let this case die, but by the time the informant came forward in 1989, there were new detectives at the Rome Police Department, and they were motivated to jumpstart the investigation again and put the case into the national spotlight. As far as suspects go, there are the two men who broke into the Grzyk home, and the mastermind behind the plan who hired them to do it. This mastermind has never been publicly named, but the impression seems to be that he was heavily involved in criminal activity, and it would not surprise me if he had members of the Rome PD in his pocket in 1976, and they helped orchestrate a cover-up. But the circumstances of how everything played out are just so odd that I honestly can't decide if the case's original investigators were corrupt, or just outright incompetent. Let's start with the discrepancy about the exact cause of Stanley's death. The original autopsy report stated that he was stabbed to death until Martin Grzyk discovered a shell casing on the dining room floor and the family felt compelled to have Stanley's body exhumed where they discovered a 25 caliber bullet in his chest. Now if police were attempting a cover-up, then I can understand why they would push forward the narrative that Stanley was stabbed, because if no one knows about the bullet in his body, and there's less chance of it being matched up to the murder weapon. But if that's the case, why was the shell casing even left behind in the Grzyk home to begin with? Martin was able to find it by simply moving the dining room table and noticed that it was resting on top of the rug. He said it wasn't concealed at all, and clearly visible if you looked hard enough. Remember, the police had kept the Grzyk family out of the home the previous night while they performed an extensive search, so it's hard to imagine them missing that shell casing. That's the one thing which makes me wonder if the investigators were just sloppy rather than outright complicit in the crime. If they had knowledge of the murder beforehand, you think that one of the very first things they try to do is recover the shell casing, especially since it was in close proximity to where Stanley's body was found. It sounds like the police's search was more focused on figuring out if anything was stolen so I guess the innocent explanation is that they weren't looking for any shells because they didn't know Stanley had been shot at this point. While Esther had seen one of the intruders briefly place a pistol on the floor, I don't think she ever heard a gunshot because her hearing aid had been knocked out. So the police may have gone into the house under the impression that a gunshot wound was not the cause of death. Still, if overlooking the shell casing was simply an honest mistake, it seems pretty sloppy that the police would miss it since it sounds like it was pretty easy to find. It's also hard to know whether the mistakes in the original autopsy report were intentional. 
They concluded that Stanley was stabbed to death, but did they really mistake a gunshot wound for a stab wound and completely miss a bullet in his chest while performing the autopsy? You'd think that if they wanted to cover up the fact that Stanley was shot, they would have removed the bullet before he was buried. I guess the most suspicious detail is that when Martin turned the shell casing over to a detective, he was told to keep quiet about it for the time being. I'm not entirely sure what happened to the shell casing. When the investigation was reopened over a decade later, it was apparently discovered that crucial evidence had been lost, but it's unclear if one of those pieces of evidence was the shell casing. The other red flag was when Patsy Peck was re-interviewed about her encounter with the two men in her bookstore on the day before the murder, and she claimed she shared this information with investigators back in 1976, but there was no record of her statement in the original file. It's interesting how Amy Scott's original statements about these two suspects was still in the file, but Patsy Peck's were not. This may have something to do with the fact that Patsy seemed to know these guys personally, but we'll get back to that in a moment. For now, let's talk about the drug dealer who came forward in March of 1989 and reignited the investigation. Now, we have no idea who this guy is, as he was interviewed on Unsolved Mysteries in Silhouette and concealed his identity but I'd be really curious to know what compelled him to suddenly come forward after 12 years. If he was facing legal trouble at this time, and trying to cut a deal of some sort by sharing information about an unsolved cold case, that would be one thing. But if he came forward of his own volition, that would lend credence to the idea that he was telling the truth. According to the informant, while he was tending bar, he was approached about participating in a burglary, and was even driven to Stanley Griesick's house. So obviously... When Stanley turned up dead in a home invasion a few days later, he had to have known there was a connection, but he stayed silent about it. I guess that's not hard to understand, since the informant was a criminal, and it sounds like the person who approached him was an influential individual, so he probably felt his life would be at risk if he talked. I have to wonder if the informant knew this guy had the police in his back pocket at that time, and the only reason he felt comfortable coming forward a decade later is because there were new detectives working at the Rome PD by this point, and he felt like he could trust them. I can understand there being credibility issues with this guy, given that he's an admitted drug dealer, but there did seem to be corroboration to his story when another witness saw two men getting paid off at the same bar after the Grisic murder took place. It's never been explicitly stated if the man who approached the informant about the burglary and the man who paid off these two suspects were the same person, but I get the impression that they are. I find it very likely that after the informant turned down the offer to participate in the burglary, the other two guys were hired instead. By the sound of things, the two men used to live in Rome, but had since moved away. They returned there to commit the crime, and then left again shortly thereafter. So now let's discuss the other two witnesses, Amy Scott and Patsy Peck. I think it's a given that Amy Scott saw the two men who invaded the Grisic home and murdered Stanley, but I do wonder about Amy's account about being tailed by them a few days after the crime took place. Not that I think she's making the story up, but perhaps it was just a coincidence that they happened to be driving in the same area and she became paranoid that they were following her. The only thing I question is whether these two men would have even known who Amy was, but she did say that she shouted at them when they sped out of the neighborhood that night and nearly sideswiped her dogs. If those guys actually heard Amy yelling, they might have become concerned that she had seen them leaving the murder scene, which is why they decided to tail her a few days later, but backed off when she stopped at the police station. 
Now, Patsy Peck's eyewitness account is a bit more confusing because she claims she saw these two men in her bookstore the day before the murder, but the implication seems to be that she actually knew their identities because they were acquainted with her husband. It sounds like this was the first time she'd seen them in quite some time since they hadn't lived in Rome for a while, but if Patsy and her husband knew who these guys were, did they not provide their names to the police? The Unsolved Mystery segment doesn't make that clear. However, I would not be surprised if Patsy did provide their names during her initial interview in 1976, but if the police were complicit in the cover-up, that would explain why her statement was missing from the file when they reopened the case 12 years later. It's also implied that the witness who saw these two men get paid off in the bar also knew who they were, as he apparently approached the guy who paid them off and asked, wasn't that so-and-so? Now, even if law enforcement knew the two men's identities, I can understand why they did not disclose this on the show. People clearly knew the identity of the individual who paid them off, but his name was not disclosed either, because you can't go publicly naming people as murder suspects on national television unless you have very strong evidence. But the confusing part is that the Unsolved Mysteries segment showed composite sketches, very creepy composite sketches I might add, of the two suspects who were believed to be responsible for the attack on the Grisic home. If they actually knew the identities of these two suspects, why were they releasing composite sketches? Anyway, shortly after the Unsolved Mysteries segment aired, the authorities announced that they had received a number of tips which pointed them towards a prime suspect. The implication seems to be that the suspect was the individual who hired the two men to break into the Grisic home, but they never specified if they actually knew the identities of those two perpetrators. The only name that law enforcement has ever released to the public was Charles Brzezinski, who was a former employee at the bar and considered a material witness in the case. I guess they felt comfortable releasing Brzezinski's name and photograph because he was technically a wanted fugitive after he jumped bail in an unrelated drug case. But it doesn't look like they ever found Brzezinski, and it's unclear what his exact connection was to the Grisic murder. Quite frankly, it would not surprise me if Brzezinski was already dead by the time the Unsolved Mystery segment aired. It sounds to me like the authorities had a pretty decent circumstantial case against their prime suspect back in 1990. You had one witness who claimed this man had approached him about breaking into the Grisic home, as well as a witness who saw him paying off two men who were seen outside the Grisic home by another witness on the night of the murder. But it seems like they just didn't feel confident this evidence was strong enough to secure a conviction if they brought the case to trial. They may have feared there would have been credibility issues with the witnesses who connected this suspect to the crime, especially since one of them was an admitted drug dealer. Overall, the investigation just seemed to lack that one crucial piece of evidence needed to close the case. Personally, I think one issue which may have prevented the authorities from prosecuting this case was the lack of apparent motive. There's definitely strong evidence that someone orchestrated a break-in at the Grisic home, which ultimately led to Stanley's murder, but the hardest thing to figure out is, why? Well, by all accounts, Stanley Grisic was a very honest individual who never would have involved himself in criminal activity, but his honesty may have been the very reason he was targeted. The key to this case is definitely Stanley's deceased brother, Peter. We know that he held the liquor license to a bar in which some very shady things took place, such as gambling and drug dealing, and this establishment wound up having its license revoked and shutting down years later. 
since all the evidence seems to point to the crime being orchestrated in this very same bar, there has to be a connection. All these events can probably be traced back to the private closed-door conversation that Stanley had with Peter while he was ill. Whatever Peter told Stanley, it must have been pretty bad if it could cause two otherwise very close brothers to cease contact with each other while one of them is on his deathbed. One of Stanley's daughters was interviewed during the Unsolved Mystery segment, and she said that her father might have been willing to look the other way if he knew his brother was involved in gambling, but would draw the line if it involved illegal drugs. There really isn't much information out there about Peter, and even though he held the bar's liquor license, it's unclear how much involvement he might have had with any of the illegal activity which took place there. Stanley never did share what his brother told him, but before his death, he did tell his daughter, I don't know when I'll ever see you again, which seemed to imply that he feared his life was in danger. So was Stanley murdered because he knew some incriminating information about the activities at the bar and was considering going to the authorities about it? Well, this is where the motive behind the crime gets a bit murky. First off, if Peter shared something incriminating with Stanley, how would the killers have even known about it? This was a private conversation which took place behind closed doors, and I get the impression that the only other people who knew this conversation even happened were members of the Grisic family. Before he passed away, did Peter somehow let Stanley's killers know that he had talked? This reminds me of another Unsolved Mysteries case I covered on the podcast last year, the murder of Perman Gilbert. One of the theories put forward is that Perman was murdered because his brother was involved in criminal activity and had testified as a witness in an organized crime case. Some people wondered if Perman might have been murdered by people connected to that case who wanted to lure his brother out of hiding when he attended Perman's funeral. Well, the key difference here is that Peter Grisick had already been dead four months before Stanley was murdered, and their conversation also took place four months before Peter passed away. So if Peter shared some incriminating information about the bar, I just don't know why the perpetrators would decide to come after Stanley after all that time had passed, or why they'd even have reason to believe that Stanley was a threat to them. The big unanswered question in this case is what exactly the two intruders were looking for when they ransacked the Grisic home. The only thing discovered to be missing were two beers from the refrigerator, so there are two possible options here. A. The intruders did find what they were looking for, but since Esther and the rest of the Grisic family were not aware of its existence, they didn't notice it was missing. Or B. The intruders were looking for something which did not even exist in the first place. Even if the intruders came into the house with the intention of killing Stanley, it's unclear if they wanted to kill Esther. They did choke her into unconsciousness, and Esther said that she pretty much played dead the entire time the intruders were there, but I think that if they wanted to kill Esther, they would have just fired a bullet into her, rather than go to the trouble of handcuffing her and tying her up. It was not mentioned in the Unsolved Mysteries segment that the Grisic six-year-old grandson was spending the night with them and sleeping upstairs throughout this entire ordeal. I'm not sure if the intruders even knew that the boy was in the house, but they left him unharmed and didn't feel too concerned about restraining him. So it's possible that Stanley was the only person killed because the perpetrators believed he knew something, but there's also an alternate explanation. According to the informant who came forward in 1989, when he was approached about participating in the job, it was referred to as a quote-unquote burglary. However, the actual break-in does not fit the profile of a burglary because even though the place was torn apart, nothing valuable was taken. 
But what if they were looking for something valuable which wasn't actually there? The informant was apparently told there was a large amount of money inside the house, but unless Stanley had a secret stash that his family didn't know about, this certainly wasn't true. So I could see a scenario where the person who orchestrated this job wrongly assumed that there was money up for the taking, so the intruders tore apart the house looking for cash which did not exist. If Peter was involved in something illegal, such as gambling or drugs, he may have been skimming money from whoever he worked for, or they were simply under the mistaken impression that he was skimming money. After Peter died, they assumed he passed this money on to his brother, who was keeping it hidden inside his house. When the intruders ransacked the place and discovered there was no money, they may have believed Stanley was holding out on them, which eventually led to them firing a bullet into him. A parallel could be made between this scenario and the 1959 murders of the Clutter family, which, as you probably know, was the subject of the iconic true crime book, In Cold Blood. In that case, the two perpetrators broke into the Clutter home because they were under the mistaken impression that there was a safe containing around $10,000 in cash. When they discovered this was untrue, and that no such safe existed, they responded by murdering the entire family. I guess the main issue with figuring out how these events transpired is that Esther's hearing aid was knocked out, so she never heard a gunshot. As a result, no one knows the exact time Stanley was killed, and whether he was shot before or after the two men finished ransacking the house. I don't know. It seems to me that if they were looking for something and couldn't find it, they might have attempted to make Stanley talk by threatening the life of his wife or his grandson, if they knew he was in the house. But this never occurred, as Esther was not disturbed at all during the entire time she was lying on the kitchen floor. So part of me wonders if the intruders actually did find what they were looking for. I have my doubts that Stanley would have been stashing drug or gambling money inside his house, but what if his brother's confession had caused him to uncover a key piece of evidence about illegal activity at the bar which he was planning to turn over to the police. When the intruders found the evidence, they killed Stanley, but did not feel the need to kill Esther because she didn't know anything about it. They subsequently left with the evidence and destroyed it before they were paid off by the person who hired them and skipped town. Overall, this is just a frustrating case because I get the impression that law enforcement reached the point where they knew what happened and who was involved, but there was just one key piece of the puzzle missing which prevented them from making any arrests and bringing this investigation to a close. I get the impression that a number of people in Rome likely knew who was behind the murder, but either out of fear or complicity, they kept quiet about what happened, and by the time the investigation was rejuvenated and there was a serious attempt to find justice, too much time had passed, and a lot of key pieces of evidence and potential witnesses were no longer around. Whatever the case, you have to feel immense sympathy for Stanley Griesick, who lived his entire life on the straight and narrow, and was likely killed because of something his brother was involved in. The whole situation was also a terrible tragedy for his wife Esther, who survived the ordeal, but the trauma of losing her husband completely devastated her. In the words of her family, Esther essentially died that night as well, and merely existed for the next 19 months before she passed away. Sadly, after all this time, I'm not sure this case can ever truly be solved, and in all likelihood, the people responsible are probably dead by now. Even though their identities have never been revealed publicly, it seems that a lot of people know who orchestrated this crime and who the two killers were, but the big mystery in this case is not so much the who, but the why. 
and I'm not sure we'll ever know the full truth about how this crime came about, and why Stanley was targeted. I don't know if anyone can still be prosecuted at this point, but should you happen to have any information about the unsolved murder of Stanley Griesick, please contact the appropriate authorities. But if you have your own thoughts about what happened, feel free to leave me a comment or send me an email at robin.warder at icloud.com. That's robin.warder at icloud.com. Another reminder that The Trail Went Cold is on Patreon, so if you have a moment, please visit patreon.com slash thetrailwentcold to learn how you can support our podcast and become eligible for some pretty neat rewards. We've released some exclusive bonus episodes for our patrons in tiers 2 and 3, and we'll be releasing another new one within the next few weeks. So to learn more information, feel free to visit our Patreon page. I'd also like to take this moment to give a shout out to our most recent listeners who have signed up to support us on Patreon, and they are Christina S., Brooke, and the Murder in My Family podcast. Thank you all so much for your support. I also just wanted to give another shout out to my supporters at the aforementioned Unsolved Mysteries message board at the Sitcoms Online Forum and the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit. Need to provide a big thanks to McGill Foote, who edits and assembles this podcast together for me, and Vince Nitro, who composes the eerie music you hear on every episode. If you haven't already, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. So have yourself a good week, and join me next Wednesday for a brand new episode of The Trail Went Cold. (laughs) 